Department documents that are continuing to be released. Welcoming to the stage, Julian Assange's father, John Citrin. The second person I'll welcome to the stage is probably someone who doesn't need any introduction to a West End, the West End audience, I'm sure, is Kieran O'Reilly. <laughs> so, the event will there'll be two journalists conducting these interviews. They are both from the Independent Australia website. The first one is uh, David Donovan, who was born in 1970 and has vast experience in journalism. Um, Kieran, you've become famous for, among other things, your non-violent anti-war protests, um, for which, uh, for defacing and disabling war aircraft, American war aircraft, you, like Julian, served some time in prison. Uh, I think 12 months in the prison in prison in the US. Is that right? Thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, um, just wondering whether you could explain what the conditions were like for you and what, uh, what it was like. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this country and also acknowledge um, uh, the war of genocide against them and a war that continues, which is convenient, the only explanation of 30% of the prison population in this country being Indigenous. And also acknowledge the war against the people of Iraq. And that's the context in which Chelsea Manning finds herself back in prison and Julian in a British prison. And I, I actually coincidentally happened to be there the first day of that war. We were at the Pentagon, Hiroshima Day, and um, Margaret Thatcher and George Bush Sr. turned up and announced the sanctions on Iraq. And uh, then we had the drive-by Gulf War One, where they dropped eight Hiroshima's on Iraq. And then we had the collapse of the anti-war movement. And then we had 10 years of sanctions where a million children were killed. And then we had the invasion. And then we had the occupation. And now there are thousands of US troops being sent back there as we speak. Uh, prisons are designed to, for every prisoner uh, to demoralise and defeat you, and especially for political prisoners to get you to recant. And in my situation, I was sentenced in New York and put on Con Air and flown across the country through Oklahoma to El Paso, Texas, and then shipped out into the outback and put in a, a very overcrowded jail. I was the only gringo in the jail. I'm the representative of the master race and uh, only white boy and it's uh, a joke. Uh, <laughs> and so there were 24 of us in a cage. Um, the cage was about this wide and then six cages welded together in one room. There were three prison officers who disappear at the first sign of trouble and it would take about 40 minutes for the riot squad to come back in. So it was a very violent uh, and boring uh, place. And the only thing, the first month I had a lot of harassment, low-level assault, uh, harassment by the prison officers and, the, and other young gang members. And that disappeared once I started getting correspondence in. And uh, the, the staff backed off immediately, not feeling I had reach on the outside. And I got popular with uh, Mexican, Mexican stamp collectors and kind of built my popular base from there. So I really encourage you to write to Julian. Um, it sends a message to the staff that he isn't forgotten, and it also, I've been with Julian in the embassy when he opens uh, letters, and it's, it's uh, I mean, the biggest thing for a prisoner is knowing your outdate, and Julian for nine years, and it was nine years on the 7th of December that he's first taken upon. Secondly, and I was talking to a Guardian feature writer, and they said, he said, no, it's uh, more serious than that. Journalists value being the gatekeepers of secrets. Who gets to know, how much they get to know, when they get to know, and WikiLeaks comes along with the primary data and goes, you work it out, you know. 
And then, but more seriously, I think uh, it's possibly the US grand jury after are more than just Julian, and some of those might be Guardian journalists. So the attitude of, we'll give you the head of Julian Assange if you leave our boys and girls alone, I think is a possibility. And that was one of the reasons the judge, judge argued that the indictment shouldn't be opened as a secret indictment until they played it, and he argued that they still might be pursuing other people. And it, it's interesting that Somerset Bean that from Adelaide, uh, the, the DOJ had just asked Google for all his stuff, and he, he's basically the graphics guy who puts out posters and stuff, so I don't know how broad the net's going to be. Uh, Kieran, you know, while you're, while you're speaking, what similarities do you see between your situation, your case, and Julian? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the... uh, Julian is in a, a dire circumstance. Um, he's lost 15 uh, kilos of weight, very skinny now. He's uh, in solitary confinement sort of for 22 hours a day. Um, he, whenever, he, whenever I go to visit or anybody goes to visit, the hallways are cleared and Julian's brought down in, through empty, long empty hallways into the meeting room. Um, there's about usually about a hundred other prisoners and their visitors in the meeting room. You, there's cameras everywhere in the ceiling and uh, each prisoner wears a yellow band. Um, you have to speak like this so that you can't be lip read if you have, want to exchange private information you know if I ask Julian how are you um, or any other personal information you know his children or so on uh, so after nearly 10 years of ceaseless psychological pressure in an increasing intensity and trajectory in the last two years where every single move and voice and action he made in the embassy, every single one, nothing. So the toilet, everything, the ladies' toilet had microphones in it because uh, the lawyers and Julian would occasionally have their uh, conferences there so that they wouldn't be overheard. But they installed a, a microphone behind the uh, paper towels. So you can imagine the effect of that year after year and towards the very end, rude and aggressive security men, uh, lawyers uh, given permission to visit and sent away, um, food forgotten to be delivered, it's their responsibility to feed him, he can't go out. Uh, he had an abscess on his tooth uh, and his lawyers wrote to the UK government that could he cross their land to go to the dentist. They said, you come outside, you'll be arrested. So you can just get, you know, a picture of the ceaseless persecution in particular, in particular delicate ways that Julian underwent, detailed ways. After five years, the room he was in, he knew every crack, every thread falling off the curtains, every piece of paint peeling off, uh, 
a bird landing on the window is a friend, you know. So, not good circumstance. I, I think here in the Shadow Foreign Minister of People of Integrity, who, when Julian was dragged from the embassy, said he shouldn't be extradited to the United States. I mean, will this, say he got deported to Australia, then we'd have to go on the front foot very quickly to defend him here. Ian Kerr, Community Radio, Portable Z. The matter behind you uh, says bring Julian home. Now, I'm, I'm wondering if there's anyone here who seriously thinks that Australia, given its track record, is a good place uh, for someone like Julian to be afforded uh, democratic rights and human rights. Um, Australia, on, on both sides of, of politics, have um, never lifted a finger to help him. And I'm wondering whether people think that he might indeed be safer in Great Britain, given that there's election coming up, um, and there's you know, maybe a remote possibility that Jeremy Corbyn would get in, and that I think he probably would do the right thing by Julian. Thank you. We can only do one thing at a time. First thing is bring him home so he can spend a bit of time with his family and kids, have a cup of coffee out on the sidewalk, watch the passing parade and breathe the air in. The next thing, if they try and extradite him, well, we'll fight that too. And we'll win. Hello? Uh, my name is Sean O'Reilly. I just want to ask uh, anybody who could give me an answer in regard to the um, Australian sort of journalism fraternity, because I've written to a number of high-profile journalists, the chief editor of the uh, Guardian Australia, the president of the, Australian, of the National Press Club, um, and had no response from them at all. And they, in fact, they've put up comments to articles they've published, and have had those comments taken down. Um, I wonder if after the uh, presentation to the National Press Club last week from the editor-in-chief, of WikiLeaks has has the Australian fraternity of journalists changed their response or lack of response? Um, and could someone explain to me why it is we've had such silence from Australian journalists, with a few exceptions? Reluctant as I am to instruct my older brother on the ways of the world, um, I think the mistake we make often in social movements is thinking that the media is some kind of objective social service when they're actually corporations that are profit-driven and run by very powerful people. I mean, what's been a, such a shame is the uh, campaign about press freedom uh, in Australia that, and not including Julian Assange's persecution as an Australian journalist. I'm also disappointed with Peter Gresty um, saying that Julian isn't a journalist. I mean, journalism, is, it's not ordination, you know. It's, it's something you do. We're all journalists. It's a basic right. Uh, to, to be able to write and reflect on things that are happening around you. And uh, yeah, that'll lead us perhaps and we'll lead nowhere. Miscarriages of justice aren't unusual in Britain. There's a long history of them. There's a long history of demonising people and, and spinning them and stuff. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's not. Um, it's not the person I know or recognise. Uh, and the, the people who accuse him of Nazism, as Goebel said, you don't accuse your enemy of just anything. You accuse them of exactly what you're going to do, exactly what you are, you know. And uh, so it's a narcissist accusing him. Thanks.
to uh, follow up a question with you, Kieran. Um, you know, given that you have actually been in a similar situation to, Jul to Julian uh, in terms of being in prison, certainly, um, why do you think, you know, that uh, you received 13 months, I believe, you served, and a couple of years, but in Julian's case, they're, they're planning to throw away the key? Yeah, I'm not the only one in this audience who's been to prison. <laughs> and we did a lot of good work from the street and the suburb to close Bobbero Jail. You know, we made our contribution. Obviously, the prisoners themselves took the big risks. And um, so I've spent time in maximum security prisons in Darwin and Brisbane and the United States and in Ireland. Um, yeah, you know, I, when I was a federal prisoner in the United States, I hardly met anyone in those 13 months who had a trial. What they do in the States is this horse trading plea bargaining. So they'll threaten Julian with 175 years and then they'll offer him 20 or 30 and say, look, you know. And, that, and that's most of the prisoners in jail in the States, uh, in the federal system anyway. Um, and it also, like Gareth Pierce, the wonderful lawyer in Ireland, she's regarded as a saint. She freed the Guildford for the Birmingham Six. She's representing Julian. And, um, the woman who was initially prosecuting him was representing Pinochet in, in England. And, uh, so she wrote an article in the London Review of Books and she was arguing for, against any extradition from Europe because in Europe, and Britain is still part of Europe at the moment, um, uh, the, the right of human association is, is, um, is recognised as a basic human right along with uh, evolutions and shelter and clothing. In the United States it's not. How they interpret the Eighth Amendment is that human association is not. So they've got over 50 or 60,000 prisoners in their system that are in isolation for life with no outdate. Uh, so Julian I've, will either be you know, taken to the States and set up to be killed in prison, it's very easy to get killed in prison, or he'll be put in a place like Florence, Colorado, where you don't ever never see another prisoner, you never know what part of the jail you're in. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's quite uh, frightening and um, it's not a surprise that he's, he's now, because he's in isolation, not doing well physically and mentally. Uh, he's a very social guy. He likes chatting to people, you know, and, um, and uh, it's a real drip-free. It's been a nine-year attack and you can't overemphasize that last year in the embassy, it became like the Truman Show. They just kept putting cameras in. They had a live feed to Quito from within the prison. We now know they had a live feed to the CIA through the Spanish court case. And they also had a uh, live feed outside the Ecuadorian embassy to the local police station. Uh, I was living in the alley in a box of like a coffin. Um, and they had 25 security cameras just in that alley. Uh, so. You know, you'd go to visit Julian, especially in the later years, and it was all this, uh, uh, you know, they do football matches too, you, put, you, you know, so you'd be lip, lip read, and in the last year they're just passing uh, messages to each other, writing and passing, and uh, it became a very, very intense uh, surveillance thing. Uh, back to you, John. Look, um, Julia Gillard, Said Assange was a criminal before he ever faced any charges, or and uh, from an outside viewpoint, it looks as if he hasn't received effective consular support from uh, all the subsequent government, uh, governments, Australian governments, since his arrest. 
Um, how does Julian feel now about the Australian government and the Australian people as a whole? You know, Gareth Pearce wrote to uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the, the, the department wrote back saying that Julian has had 100 consular assistances in one form or another, which is a, a testament to failure. He's there still. Um, so the Australian government has been complicit with notable exceptions. Um, Malcolm Turnbull uh, asked uh, Julie Bishop, the foreign minister, to inquire about uh, Julian at a meeting in London with uh, Jeremy Hunt, which she did, and found a, a whole raft of aversions. Um, a week later, she raised the subject uh, with Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State of the United States, and he replied with no intention of talking about that matter. So it needs um, strong and firm involvement of the United States at a diplomatic level, not consular. The consular, they come and give you a newspaper. You know, the, the consular visits in the last year from memory, there were three. We recorded audio and video. These are private consular visits of Australian citizens, Australian officials to Julian. But we see from the Morrison government nothing, no response. Um, the Morrison government, so we keep on putting in FOIs. Uh, <laughs> must be a pest for them anyway, they go in every week now um, and they cover everything that uh, we can think of. So I got some back and I read them. Now, Nils Melser's full 36 page report is amongst the FOIs, so they have read it. They've received it and read it. In that, Nils Melser deconstructs the Swedish allegations, deconstruction completely. Now they've had that report for a good while, since it was made. At uh, Senate Estimates hearing about a month ago, um, Maurice Payne was asked a question and she replied that Julian has rape allegations, the plural, and the non-fact. So this this is a, a calumny against citizen of Australia, Julian Assange, by the Minister for Foreign Affairs. Anyway, I, I, looking at your faces, I, I think uh, I'm being a bit, a bit uh, too depressing. But um, yeah, forgive me, but uh, sometimes this. Uh, these questions don't have a witty end. So I'll try and make up something amusing. <laughs> yeah, I remember the first time we had a lengthy conversation with Julian. We were asked by WikiLeaks to provide security for him to get him into court and out of court. 
and I, I, I look big, you know, I have had a decent fight for 30 years, but my grandson was a trained killer, he was from the British SAS, he was in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Northern Ireland, and Macedonia. Anyway, we went up there to meet him, and at one point he was reflecting on the disingenuous nature of the British media establishment. I remember him jumping up from the couch and going, I'm an Australian, I'm not a fucking liar. You know, and I thought, yeah, too right, mate. And uh, he really was the best of Australianness, you know, about that egalitarian thing, no one's above me, no one's below me. I mean, the British thing is so class-ridden, the whole culture there. The Americans are kind of over-polite, you don't really trust them. <laughs> but Australians, even though they're brutal, you know, like the British will, will piss on you and tell you it's raining, the Australians will piss on you and give you a weather forecast, but next time they're going to piss on you. And it's like, and you know, he, he's, uh, he has a lot of hope in Australia and he has a very Australian identity. And, um, you know, it reminded me of the people I met at Jabaluka and the people I met at Melbourne, the World Economic Forum, you know, Australians at their best and resourceful and, and, and um, he's obviously committed to his work and uh, he's been at this, you know, since childhood and uh, he should be really celebrated in this culture in this country. Just a follow-up on that one. Um, sort of despite what Kieran said, it does appear as if uh, Julian's received far more support uh, internationally than he has uh, from Australians. Present company excluded, of course. Um, John, why do you think that might be? That uh, it doesn't seem as if you know Australian publications, the uh, Australian government. And it seems a healthy section, or a large section of the Australian community, haven't swung behind him. Well, answering the last first, wherever I go, I find tremendous support. There's no institutional support for Julian, which the institutions normally channel, like lightning rod, channel the interests of the public upward. And no institutional support means uh, that there's uh, no means until now for us to make our feelings known to the government. Um, well, I was just asking why he seems to get more support internationally. Uh, uh, the support internationally, you know, I see people at the very highest level in, it's not because of me, by the way, because of you guys. You know, I see people in the, the very highest level in Italy, chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, and they've established a cross-party uh, group in Italy. They've established a cross-party group in Germany. Again, I see, I met the, the uh, man who inherited the Spiegel, the largest selling newspaper. So at the very highest level, uh, they are interested in this situation because it's European publication. It's the United States intimidating everybody who makes commentary about any action of the state or their corporation. So, you know, uh, Europe has been plundered by Google. It's uh, uh, plundered by Apple. They have. Uh, they don't pay any tax. They reject. They do transfer pricing. They're plundered by. Facebook, 
they, they face, uh, Google uses its influence on the American government to uh, resist the, the EU's attempt to break up Google into smaller units. That's why they're, they're supporting because they have an enormous problem. Their publishers can't publish, their journalists can't write, um, and their ordinary people are intimidated in this circumstance. So wherever I go, there's an enthusiastic response. But amusingly, uh, I had a meeting with Kristen and the leader of the largest union and some MEPs uh, and uh, MPs, German MPs in the Bundestag. There was a full house like here. Um, there, there were no, except for one, there were no mass media. So the legacy media avoided it. There's a full house full of um, important uh, avenues of organisation. The next day we flew to Cologne and a church group called Peace something or other, I forget in German, had put on an event like today. And uh, again, it was a, the same, you know, looking over that are all middle-aged people. Every single mass media reported on the church event. Um, you know, we'll get there. I think one of uh, Julian's lawyers, Jen Robinson, reflected where Julian is popular is at the extremities of empire. Like, he's really big in Bangladesh. But <laughs> where he's not popular is at the centre of empire, and uh, a lot of hostility in England, you know. And it, there was quite general sympathy, I think, on the liberal left in the United States until Clinton blamed her uh, election loss on WikiLeaks, um, and a general scepticism in Australia, uh, sceptical support. Uh, but apparently, according to Jen Robinson, uh, she is popular at the extremities of empire. Very interesting. Um, John, many people, uh, obviously, applaud WikiLeaks' work because it has shone a light on the activities of governments and the surveillance state. Um, many of them arguably immoral, if not illegal. On the other hand, others suggest that WikiLeaks' activities have put in jeopardy the, sec the security of individual agents and governments. How do you reconcile this and, and where do you draw the line? Um, well, people have said that, uh, you know, some of his activities have put people in jeopardy, uh, security of individual, you know, agents um, and governments, for example. Um, just briefly, uh, um, Robert Gates, who's uh, Secretary of State, testified before Congress that it uh, didn't do us any harm, no. Was anybody home? No. Was it awkward? Yes. Is it embarrassing? Yes. The Australian government uh, put, uh, made an inquiry that it were, was the Australian interest harmed or anybody harmed? No, their report says no. The American government did the same investigation and gave the same answer. This is a technique. I use it sometimes to amuse. Uh, the little girl. I said, oh, look at a cockroach just there. 
cool. And then the her tape, one of her toys, just for fun. It's just that simple. They don't want us to see the crimes. They don't want us to insist that those who caused, who did cause the destruction of eight countries in 20 years, a million dead, millions displaced, they don't want us to focus on that. They say, Julian is this or somebody. Now it's, once I saw an official, uh, an American official, responsible for the, there have been many of them, responsible for the administration of the destruction of Iraq, say he endangered lives. Can you imagine anything more grotesque, anything more obscene than this blighter getting up there who administers the destruction of Iraq, saying he endangered lives. They're mad. They're, I think they're ghouls, actually. They're conjured up by magic and they get these jobs. Um, To reflect briefly on the nature of crime, I think it's interesting. I mean, as radical Christians, I feel this where you read the scripture and your location, like the Imperii, is important. And you know, when we begin reading it, when we're hosting Aboriginal kids in the street and reading it in jail and stuff, and uh, uh, one of the first people I met in Bogor Road said, you know, people will stop robbing banks when banks stop robbing people. And I, I think what that points to is there's wholesale crime and retail crime. There's wholesale theft, killing and dealing in dangerous substances, and that's done by governments and corporations. And unfortunately, a lot of people we meet in jail aren't in there for heroically rebelling against capitalism, they're in there for mimicking it and, and retail attempts. And they're also in there as victims of historical crimes, like uh, the theft of their lands and their culture and stuff like that. So um, war is significant because it's violence that sustains exploitation. Just as though, as peace is the basis, as justice is the basis of peace, violence and the ability to kill is the basis of maintaining systems of exploitation. And, you know, we live, we share a fence, our family, with Gallipoli Barracks. My mother had three um, uncles who went to World War I through there, and then we were growing up during Vietnam, and they had conscription. Now, all they need from us you know, they had to mobilise the whole society for World War One and World War Two. They needed your firstborn son for Vietnam. All they need now is is for us to avert our gaze, to look the other way. And if Chelsea Manning had done that in Baghdad, Chelsea Manning would not have been tortured and imprisoned. And if you know Julian Assange had commodified his gifts, he'd be poolside in Silicon Valley as a multimillionaire and not in prison. And um, that's you know it's a criminal. This whole system's a criminal enterprise. wrap this up soon, but um, just uh, one question, uh, John. Now, Julian reportedly once said that the choice between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump was like the choice between, I think, cholera and gonorrhea. Assange has gone from being a darling of the left, uh, much of the left, to being virtually public enemy number one after the election of Donald Trump simply because he published the information that he, that he received, which was always the modus operandi of WikiLeaks. Um, 
What is your uh, what is your position on that? Uh, thank you. I want to answer that one. You know, the DNC leaks uh, reveal that uh, Bernie Sanders had been dotted out of the nomination by the DNC. That's the entirety of it. So that to, to, to uh, distract uh, from that terrible failure and the criminal behaviour, they just uh, launched the Russia Gate and Julian this and WikiLeaks that. None of us uh, are able to see that Bernie Sanders was doubted out of the uh, nomination and the money was directed to Hillary Clinton's campaign. That's the end of it. And so we all recognise it now. And the, these smearings, mobbings, calumnies are only launched, of general demonisation, are only launched against Julian because he brought us the gift of factual information and truth wherein we can make good judgments about who to support, where to go, which friend is a true friend, and so on. These are wonderful gifts. We'll set up the question and answer now. We'll set up the question and answer now. Yeah. Um, just one last question. What drives Julian? I don't know. I often looked at him and think, you know, like, why are you so bossy? <laughs> <laughs> and then I end up in late age with a young daughter, and she's worse. <laughs> so I don't really have good answer for Yeah, I think, I mean, there is a small possibility Jeremy Corbyn might win this election tomorrow, and... Uh, you know, I, do, I, I think here in the Shadow Foreign Minister are people of integrity who, when Julian was dragged from the embassy, said he shouldn't be extradited to the United States. I mean, Will was, say he got deported to Australia, then we'd have to go on the front foot very quickly to defend him here, so he would get to the states from here. If anyone wants to maintain contact, uh, please leave their email addresses down here and uh, we'll try and mobilise whenever Julian goes to court, especially we're heading towards this extradition hearing at the end of February. Thank you. Thanks for coming tonight. Thanks very much. We're about to go to the question and answer session. Michael will take these questions. Uh, no, and we're going to set up a microphone for people who ask questions from, so we'll just take a few minutes to do that.
Um, given the limited time frame, we would appreciate it if people would please ask a question and uh, not make a statement. Um, so if you have a question, would you please come up to the microphone there and... Ian Kerr, Community Radio, Portable Z. Um, I'm looking at the, the banner uh, behind you there, Bring Julian Home. The banner behind you uh, says Bring Julian Home. Now, I'm, I'm wondering if there's anyone here who seriously thinks that Australia, given its track record, is a good place uh, for someone like Julian to be afforded uh, democratic rights and human rights. Um, Australia, on, on both sides of, of politics, have um, never lifted a finger to help him. And I'm wondering whether people think that he might indeed be safer in Great Britain, given that there's election coming up, um, and there's you know maybe a remote possibility that Jeremy Corbyn would get in, and that I think he probably would do the right thing by Julian. Um, well, we, we yeah. do you want to ask him that? that Thank you. We can only do one thing at a time. First thing is bring him home so he can spend a bit of time with his family and kids, have a cup of coffee out on the sidewalk, watch the passing parade and breathe the air in. The next thing, if they try and extradite him, well, we'll fight that too, and we'll win. to the um, Australian sort of journalism fraternity because I've written to a number of high profile journalists, the chief editor of the uh, Guardian Australia, the president of the, Australian, of the National Press Club, um, and had no response from them at all. And they, in fact, they've put up comments to articles they've published and have had those comments taken down. Um, I wonder if after the uh, presentation to the National Press Club last week from the editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks has has the Australian fraternity of journalists changed their response or lack of response? Um, and could someone explain to me why it is we've had such silence from Australian journalists, with a few exceptions? Um, you know that uh, the Australian journalists have come on board, most of the MEAA has uh, reiterated its support uh, for Julian, the, um, a few unions have the, the union movement starting to shift. I don't uh, have good answers uh, except uh, to that question. It seems uh, opaque to me, you know, trying to look into why these corporations and editors refuse or participate in the mobbing and smearing of Julian. With The Guardian, it's beyond the pale. I don't read it. I haven't done it for years. But uh, with other 
newspapers, they're slowly coming around. So the sentiment is improving and it comes from us. I'm sure it comes from us. Everywhere I go, there's you. There's no, you know, crowded room full of newspaper owners. There's us. So the sentiment change rises up within us and they are forced to obey us because uh, that's the condition, that's the social contract. They will obey us. 14,000 emails in 48, 40 hours. I mean, this is, this is something very special. Well, after, as I am to instruct my older brother on the ways of the world, um, I think a mistake we make often in social movements is thinking that the media is some kind of objective social service when they're actually corporations that are profit-driven and run by very powerful people. I mean, what's been a, such a shame is the uh, campaign about press freedom uh, in Australia that, and not including Julian Assange's persecution as an Australian journalist. I'm also disappointed with Peter Greste, um, saying that Julian isn't a journalist. I mean, journalism is it's not ordination, you know. It's, it's something you do. We're all journalists. It's a basic right uh, to, to be able to write and reflect on things that are happening around you. And, uh, yeah, that'll lead us perhaps going to lead nowhere. Good uh, My name is Nigel. I'd just like to thank uh, Mr. Assange, your, your son, and uh, the work he's done. He's a hero to uh, us personally as activists and um, and we just obviously we thank you. Um, first, and I just want to really now ask Kieran, how do you, after being in all these prisons, um, get around internationally? Can I get your lawyer? Because I've just got a cannabis conviction for a grand of I, I can't go anywhere, mate. <laughs> how do you do it? I, 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 I can't go anywhere, not that I want to, but uh, how do you do it? <laughs> I've got an Irish passport that's helpful. Um, yeah, I'm pretty surprised they let me anywhere near an airport, but they do. Uh, so, uh, I was detained five times under counter-terrorist legislation in, in Dublin, Belfast, and London in the space of 12 months, even though I'm a, a well-known pacifist, you know. And uh, obviously, I'm banned for life from the United States, so America's lost Europe's game. Um, um, so it's not an exact science, you know. And um, I don't want to tell the police officers who are here tonight. <laughs> Hi, I was wondering if you had any advice for young journalists who want to make a change in the world? Tell the truth. <laughs> Michael, I think you know one of the things that you can do is become an unpaid intern in Penn Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the problems that we've got in the world at the moment is people are so worried about getting a job and having their social media activities and their journalistic activities following them around that we lack for truth telling. 
in part. Independent Australia, it doesn't worry about that sort of stuff. I know that no one will ever employ me again. So, Michael, I think honestly, there is a, a real appetite in the community for honesty and for just telling the unmitigated truth. Hello, uh, my name is Fred Kramer, and I like to be a little bit uh, the devil's advocate. Uh, if we see uh, the silencing of Julian Assange, and uh, he's not the only one, there are a lot of dissidents in the world who are getting silenced uh, against, as they speak out, against war, against the wrongs of the government. Uh, don't you think that uh, the ones who really run the world are only interested in one thing, to have this conformity, because they need the Third World War, like before the First World War and the Second World War, because they have to get out of the economic disaster they have created. cross-party parliamentary group that you had facilitated or initiated. I'm interested to know what your hopes for that are and how we can support that group to be effective. That, uh, the <clears throat> so we started off a couple of years ago just uh, visiting uh, Peter Wish Wilson of the Greens. Um, he put up with my uh, conversation for a few hours and then then we went on to others. Then it was taken over by Elisa Brooks, who was the husband of David Hicks, and she had a, a lot of experience in working on David, David's case. Um, and so she runs, uh, she, uh, Alicia runs that now, uh, and very successfully. Every sitting day in Parliament, Alicia does the tour, knocks on the doors, speaks to them, and has built uh, a trusted relationship with the parliamentarians. So that there are many now, other than the 11 and the other five, so other than those, there are many who are concerned and worried that what will happen is similar to what happened to the Howard government. That there is a, an unpopular government with a layer of distaste of the treatment of David Hicks and such that they were humiliated, lost government and the Prime Minister lost his seat. So that's their concern now, which uh, we hope to uh, make them even more concerned about. <laughs> um, that's a good question. Uh, first thing is uh, maybe, uh, it's, oh, it's not here. Um, um, Philip Adams uh, is, is it? Uh, There's just one last question here from this lady here. 
I'll answer both, don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> Is there any way to write to Julian? Yeah. yeah that, that's a, that sort of answers your question as well. You know, it's really important for Julian to, as Kieran says, to get letters, just a card, just say from Queensland. You know, there were happy days for him on Stradbroke. So just, that's all you've got to do. Write and say, memories of Stradbroke or Queensland, hope you're doing well. Love. What's your Well, then you can go to uh, assangecampaign.org.au and there's a very simple method of sending an email to your member of parliament. Really simple and that's very, very effective. Thanks to 14,000 emails that Okay, well, I think we'll uh, finish the questions there and we'll introduce this Philip Adams, not the other one, who's going to talk to us about the campaign and about the website. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Yeah, I'm uh, My name is Philip Adams, I was born. Um, first, of all, I want to pay my respects to the traditional owners, the Gura people on their land that we, um, that we stand. Um, I'm the petitioner, um, I'm, I'm just like you, I don't know Julie, I started it because um, I felt I had some skills and uh, there was a big gap in the campaign. So it's important to know that ever since Federation it's the right, sovereign right of Australian citizens to take their grievances to the government by way of petition. And on July 11, 2018, I'm going to read a bit here every now and then to make sure I don't miss it. I'm to some important stuff about the campaign, so um, I know it's been a long night, but um, there's some important stuff here, it's not going to be long. So July 11, last year, I started the petition and it's been very difficult. It was difficult at the start to get it going. I had a lot of surveillance, a lot of hacking. I had Americans outside my house, I'm a family man. Um, and a lot of standover stuff happened to me. Um, so, just finish that right now. Um, ever since he was take, Julian was taken out of the embassy, it, all that seems to have stopped. So, thank, you know, I'm happy that it stopped, but it was a real battle. Um, the petition doesn't ask for any money. I don't ask for any money. I've done it for nothing, not one cent. This isn't for politics. I'm not going for politics or anything like that. Uh, the petition platform itself does, they ask for donations, it's their business. It's not my business, it's not the business of what I'm doing on behalf of the citizens. Um, but I use their platform, change.org, because it works. No using something that's not going to work. On November the 12th, the petition was tabled in Parliament. So it's in Parliament now, okay? Unlike any other petition that's been tabled in Parliament, I refuse to close it. So it is now the fourth largest petition in the history of the Australian Parliament. So anyone who thinks 
there's not much support. There's a lot of support and we're in there and it's important to understand that. 225,000, we should pass 226,000 today. Um, I think it's the largest petition tabled by an individual, actually. The other ones are the Pharmacy Guild petition, which is 1.2 million, the beer tax petition, 700,000, and the Medicare levy petition of 1994, I think, is half a million. And then this one, which is 225,000. So I, I, I hope no one, not one more signature happens, it'll close as soon as he's free. But if he's not going to be free, this is going to be the largest in the history of the parliament. I guarantee you. <laughs> I know how to run a campaign. I'm, a camp I'm not a campaign specialist anymore, but I spent 20 years doing it for large US companies and I know how to do it. That's why I did this. Now, um, this petition also is unlike any other um, petition that's, that's been formed through change.org. Um, with change.org, what they do is, they have milestones. Once you pass 500, 1,000, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 signatures, etc., change submits the petition to the designate, in which case, in this one, it's Maurice Payne and Morrison. But the petition that I've done is different. I do the submissions, right? I assembled the database of 226 now parliamentarians, and I submit, I've submitted 39 so far to each and every one of them with confirmation of delivery of, you know, delivery to email, and their email comes back to me. So I've got a copy of them all that they've got it, but they can't bullshit and say they haven't got it. They all know it and they've got it. Now, that's where it's come from. We've assembled the Bring Assange Home Parliamentary Group. It was 11 parliamentary. Now we have 19 supporters. That's growing a little bit. So where to from here? Uh, no more questions for the parliamentarians. We can ask him any more questions. We've got our answers. I worked with Pamela Anderson too, putting letters in the parliament. We've got our answers. We don't need any more questions. Why? Because we now own the communication platform on this matter. The only time the bastards get to speak now is when they're asked a question. We own the platform. We're the only ones that can speak on this. They open their mouths, they're barraged now. They get a barrage on social media. This is a social media thing. It's not people in the street, social media. Now, what are we doing? Well, we spoke about this uh, campaign of sending emails to everybody. What I recommend, if you're not a signatory to the petition, sign it, right? Just Google free Julian Assange petition. It comes up, I've organised the algorithms, it's the first one there. My name is Philip Adams, I'm the petitioner. It's the first one that comes up. If you don't want to go and sign the petition, send me an email. My email address is philipadams with two L's, philipadams at hotmail.com. Send me an email. And what I'll send you is the link. 
Philip Adams, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-A-D-A-M-S, philipadams at hotmail.com. Send me an email and I'll send you the link that we've generated. Matthew Bretherton, champion down in Melbourne, high-tech genius. We've assembled this link. And what do you do? We sent it out yesterday morning. Click on the link. It's on the petition website as yesterday's update. Click on the link. Put in your postcode. Three steps. Put in your postcode. Mine is 4159. Up comes um, Andrew Lamming, MP, and all the senators, like eight of them, or whatever it is, all come up. It's that good that it has a, you put in your name, your email address, and your, and your address, because they've got to know you're in their zone. And then it gives, formulates a letter specific for whether they support Julian Freedom or not. It's that good, and we're going to change the letters as we wind up to February. Now it's, you know, we want you to support, or thank you for your support, okay? Click on that, and all of a sudden, bang, from every single one of you goes 12 emails to 12 parliamentarians, and they can't stop it, because it goes from you to them. And within, from nine o'clock yesterday morning, we sent them out, we had some teething problems, we got a thousand out, we worked out the teething problems overnight, we held them back, and we launched them today, and we got over 14,500. So those people in Parliament now look at their inboxes and it's just joy the sun. We have launched a tsunami. A tsunami. 225,000 people got that message yesterday morning. 225,000 people, of which 150,000 are Australians. And they're going to send those emails, and they've already started. And those people, they're not going to know jack shit what to do about this, other than answering our issue. It's just, exactly. It's like, yes, it's a power ride. We, 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 we are standing up, and, and the petition is fantastic, because what it does, it's our voice in there. I'm not going to let anyone down. Um, if you have any suggestions or any campaign, I also broadcast and help promote that through the petition. So. That's all I want to say, um, and um, that's about it. Thank you. Thank you. So our final speaker for the evening is John Diggins, who's the tour manager um, and who is the principal organiser of tonight's event. And uh, he's just going to talk about where things are going from here and to thank a few people. Yeah, I, I realise you've been here a while, so I'll make this sort of short. First of all, I, I just want to thank the people who have made this possible. In particular, um, and I'd like you to you know, give your support to them too. First of all, to Michael Cope, President of the Queensland Council for Civil Liberties, who's been our MC. Um, and to our interviewers, Michelle Pinney and David Donovan from Independent Australia.
And from our, um, or from Kieran O'Reilly, who's been one of the people interviewed. <laughs> And uh, finally, of course, to John Shipton, who has um, been a, a really wonderful speaker and informed you a lot about what's happening with yeah. Julian. <laughs> and uh, now to sort of... Um, well, when I first started to organise this meeting, the reason I wanted to organise it was to get uh, people together who had become activists for Julian Assange and we are collecting names for people who want to do that and we will hold a meeting uh, very shortly on that and we'll send out um, a message for when that happens and it uh, really depends on how many we get. We had a meeting in uh, Mullum only a few days ago and 300 people attended and 100 people signed up to be part of the support group for Julian. And uh, so, you know, it could be quite difficult, you know, finding a room big enough to organise it in, depending on how many we get. And what uh, Philip Adams was talking about, the sort of internet activism, is really great. And we've also got to sort of integrate that with um, grassroots activism, which, um, is what you know political campaigns used to be based on, which means you sort of go out, you have stalls, you try and get people to sign up for the petition, try and get them to sign up for sending letters to Julian, tell them about what's coming up at the end of February. And what's coming up at the end of February is the US extradition trial. And it's really going to be really important then to um, be able to mobilise far bigger crowds than what we've got now. Um, this meeting's been really good. Like I, I realise it was very chaotic at the beginning because we've only got 100 seats and I think um, double that number attended. So, um, you yeah, know, congratulations to yourself. Yeah. And so that's what we've got to do. We've got to get organised for what's coming up in February. And that's why we want you to sort of sign up to the group to be supporters, to sort of go out there and campaign on a grassroots level to help um, John bring Julian home, was the slogan we, call, we called for this meeting. So thank you all very much for attending. Before you go, Estelle doesn't need a microphone. Hi,